I'm already starting to think about we need a 2017 calendar put out pretty soon. <laughs> Some people need to plan ahead for vacations and employment purposes and so on. But that's, that's getting some years up there toward the end of this age. Well, last week we finished the book of James, which is, uh, has different themes going through it, but it, it certainly has as its greatest theme, I think, faith. And faith is something that is somewhat difficult for human beings. Uh, Christ even said that when he comes back at the end of the age, will he find faith on the earth? So, faith in God is something that is really hard to come by, whereby we have total trust, total commitment uh, to the fact that there is a God in heaven and that he created us and put us here and that what he wrote in his book, the Bible, the book of instruction on how to conduct a human life is essentially what it is. Uh, but it's hard for us with our deceptive, carnal human minds particularly to accept that everything God put in this book is what's good for me. Now, we know probably it's good for others, but uh, not good for me uh, is the way we tend to interpret it. I saw something today that caught my eye. It says the reason they really don't put uh, the Ten Commandments in public places and courtrooms these days is because when you have a bunch of lawyers, judges, and politicians, you can't say anything about thou shalt not steal, lie, or commit adultery, or kill. Uh, so human beings don't naturally want to keep God's law, and it's hard for us. And, and to do so when everything in a human mind and emotional makeup wants us to do this, when God says do that, it becomes difficult. And we want security, we want peace, we want um, to feel blessed. We like to be comfortable, let's say. And since the Garden of Eden and man was turned out, uh, life hasn't been very comfortable, I'm afraid, <clears throat> for many, many different reasons. So it's hard for us to trust entirely a God, even though we can look at the heavens and the earth and all that He has made and see that that took an incredibly superior intelligence and power and ability to design and create what we do see, we can recognize that. But I think a lot of the problem we have with faith is that we are what we are. We're human beings, and we know the standard of life that God has given us in Scripture, and we have difficulty living up to and, and measuring up to that standard. And so... Is a strange thing. We can recognize there's a God, but we are so fallible ourselves that it gets in our way of trusting that God. Because we make mistakes, we know we fall short of the glory of God, and we know that we could fail <clears throat> in His purpose for us to become God someday. And it isn't so much in that sense, lack of faith in God, I think, is that it's lack of confidence in ourselves that we can do what we need to do 
to be what God wants us to be. So our own confidence in self gets shaken, and therefore it ripples out and shakes our trust and confidence in God that we can be what we're supposed to be. So what's the answer to that? Draw closer to God, be more obedient, uh, do everything we can to get in line with His way of life, and then our confidence and our faith and trust in Him will grow. He says the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, it's hard to be bold when you have a guilty conscience, uh, a lot of bad memories and sins that you've committed. They may have been forgiven by God, but they're still there uh, in your memory and mind, and they still affect your outlook. So, faith is a thing that is hard to come by, partially because of Satan who is there besetting us, and partly because we recognize our failures. And therefore, it's hard for us to trust a God who can help overcome our failures. But the only way is to get close to Him. It's like Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of sin and death? And he said, Christ Emmanuel is the only one that can. So, we have to transfer our own lacks to God's incredible capacity to overcome our lacks if we get close to Him. And you can't overcome without God's Spirit. It's just not going to happen. Willpower won't get it done. Human nature always gets in the way. So faith is a difficult commodity. Let's put it that way. And it takes diligence. It takes prayer. It takes obedience to cause our faith to grow. And it takes trials and tests. Uh, how did... Abraham and some of those gain greater trust in God. Well, when they laid their life out on the line, or their future, or their security, and trusted God, and He delivered them, then their level of trust in Him increased. We do that with humans. If you loan somebody ten bucks and He pays you back, you're more prone to loaning twenty bucks next time. And if that goes on a few times, you'll trust Him more. But if he never does come through with what he said he would do, whatever it might be, uh, then you begin to say, I don't know whether I can trust that person or not. So, as we grow, as we learn, as we pass tests, then our faith in God will continue to grow. But it is not an easy thing to happen. Now, to go with that faith... We need hope. Uh, hope is something that keeps us going. Even a proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So when you, you're desiring, you're hoping something happens, and it happens, you feel good. Oh, wow, sure glad that turned out good. But if it doesn't, uh, it makes the heart sick. So hope is a very, very important commodity, a very important emotion to feel. Uh, you have to feel hopeful. People in this day and age, in spite of the wealth we have, 
in spite of everything that man has made that has made life in some respects easier, uh, we have an awful lot of people who are depressed and discouraged and frustrated and a huge number of Americans on one kind of pill or another to make them feel better. Uh, because this is not a happy country anymore. There are many, many nations who have a higher level of happiness and contentment with life than Americans do. Uh, quite a few. And they don't have materially what we have and have had. So we need hope. And I want to go now to the book of Peter, First Peter, because... Uh, the probably strongest theme through Peter is hope. Uh, there's a lot in here about humility as well and other side issues, but there's much, much about hope. And he tries to give us hope. So on the heels of faith, to discuss hope, I think, is very, very important. Uh, hope is not easy to come by either. <laughs> Because life can be very defeating. There can be problems. Uh, so anyway, Peter saw that in the early church, and God knew it would be a problem now. So he inspired Peter to write this to them and to preserve it for us. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Emmanuel, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now let's understand that very likely Peter was writing this from here in the American Southwest, and some of these names and all these peoples were here at that time. Uh, they migrated later from this cradle of civilization where God originally did the creation. I'm quite convinced of that now. Uh, I, I read an article where someone indicated that through DNA we're all related to black Africans. And that may be true. Uh, I mean, you go back through, all the way back to Adam and Eve and forward, and we, we're all related on some level or not. But the reason he wrote this article in part was that they're passing more and more laws in this country that you have advantages if you're a Native American or a black African or, or whatever. And uh, we're all men of color. <laughs> all the way back. So, even though Gaul here in Galatia means blonde, uh, we're, we all are of mixed race at this point to one degree or another. And he said he was a 16th Indian, so from now on when he fills out papers, he's going to write Native American on there. Well, I've got some Indian and some of you do too. But to me, and the reason I'm going into this, is that we, more than anyone, are Native Americans. This is the original place of the Garden of Eden in this area, and it's where mankind started, and it's where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked, and they later were, not they, but uh, Israel was later taken captive out of here and taken overseas in ships, as Exodus, well, Deuteronomy says. And... Uh, came back later, and we left behind a mixture of peoples who were black, yellow, and white mixed called Native Americans today. But we were the ones who were here natively, and then the mixture of races occurred during that period of time. So we actually 
superseded or were before these who today call themselves Native Americans. So we are legitimately <laughs> Native Americans. Anyway, he wrote this basically to Israelites who were scattered through different places and to the church. Uh, because wherever God's called out people are, spiritual Jews, spiritual Israelites, they're going to be strangers. They won't fit in with the society around them. They're different. So he wasn't necessarily making a racial statement here when he wrote this. He was making a statement about people who are called of God, and he'll show, he'll show that here in just a moment. And it doesn't matter what race we are uh, physically. If we're called of God to be spiritual Jews and spiritual Israelites, that's the only thing that matters. So these people were scattered all through different countries, but it, so it didn't matter what race they were. They were spiritual Israelites and spiritual Judeans just as we today are in the church. It doesn't matter our racial ethnicity whatsoever. The question is, are we called of God? So in verse 2, he states that, really. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So wherever they were, uh, they were strangers because they were called of God. Now, if they were of a certain racial mixture and they were in a certain country, they wouldn't have been strangers there. But the fact that they knew and tried to follow God made them strangers. So he calls them the elect. And what that means is divinely selected or elected to be uh, children of God, begotten sons of God, and that in this day and age. So he calls us the elect. This is who he's writing it to. Those selected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God had knowledge of whom he wanted to call. Now, if that goes all the way back in terms of uh, predestination, uh, I don't think predestination as the world tries to understand it is what God meant. Because if you were predestined all the way back, that means that God would have had to have made all the marriages that were made from Adam and Eve forward, he would have had to have allowed or caused all the fornication and all the adultery and all of those things, and interracial marriage, which he had forbidden at certain times. He would have had to have overseen all of that to make sure you came out to be you. And it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, even a few of the prophets of old said, God knew me from the womb. It didn't say he knew them all the way back before Adam and Eve were created. So he had a certain type of person that he knew he was going to call. That was set up way ahead of time. It would be the weak and the base. Uh, it would be those who weren't held in esteem by others. And a few he may have called even from the womb before they were born. But by then, he knew the parents and he knew the DNA and the makeup and everything else. Uh, so, God didn't cause all the sin that is in your background that caused you to be you. And every one of us has some. Uh, and how many 300 generations or more since Adam and Eve uh, are not without sin in any of us. So, God didn't cause all that in order to make you what you are. 
But he did have foreknowledge of a type that he was going to call, and he may have even had foreknowledge of you and me uh, from the mother's womb. Uh, maybe not even back to the time of conception necessarily, uh, but once you were there uh, in the mother's womb, then he knew you by whatever DNA happened to come together that particular day. So he had some foreknowledge one way or another, and at some point he decided to call you. And I think most of us have in our lives things we can look back to and say, I think God must have been working with me even though I didn't know it clear back then and preparing me to be called. Uh, I, I, nearly everyone I've ever talked to about the subject over the years has, has confirmed that, well, I, I can see as I look back, God must have been working with me clear back then. So, the foreknowledge of God was there in your selection or election to be one of the called out ones today. And there is a strange dichotomy in that, in that we can look at these scriptures because Peter's going to blow us up and build us up here pretty good to help instill hope within us. But before we get into it further, let's examine a little and, and, and think about the strange situation we're in. We can be the elect, the called of God, and that can make us feel good, it can make us feel important, and indeed, a calling from God is the most important thing that can happen to a human being on this earth today. But the problem we have as humans is then we suddenly become self-important. We're not just important to God's purpose and to His plan if we begin to think of ourselves as important in some way, even spiritually here, then self-importance and self-righteousness isn't far behind. So no matter who we are as a human being, uh, we have difficulties being and becoming what God wants us to be. So, with recognizing a calling of God, we have to understand we're no more important than any other human being. Because before it's over, through the series of resurrections, God is going to give every human being who was ever conceived, I think, not just born, but conceived, a chance at salvation. And that makes us all on the same level of importance. Now, think back on when you were choosing a husband or choosing a wife. Maybe you knew several guys or gals that you might have had a certain amount of interest in or crushes on through high, grade school, high school, college, whatever. And uh, you were thinking in terms of who is the knight in shining armor or who is the most wonderful girl in the world or whatever you thought. But you may have considered several different possibilities as mates. But then somewhere along the line you settled on one. Good, bad, or indifferent decision is not what we're discussing here. But the one you did settle on, was that person more important or better than Others around? No. You just liked them better. <laughs> but they weren't more important or better than anybody else. 
Now, you might argue with me a little bit because you selected that one and that turned out good. But you might have could have selected somebody else and it might have turned out just as well uh, because there's not that much difference in human beings when it's all said and done. The point being that just by birth and by nature, we're not any of us any better than anybody else. If God had mercy and called us in our weakness and in our baseness, then we need to have deep humility and thanksgiving that he was willing to reach down to the bottom of the barrel and select us and then not get self-important and self-righteous about the calling, but to be truly righteous in God's righteousness in a sense of importance that we are important to God's plan and purpose and that he chose us to be candidates to be part of the bride of Christ. He could have selected out of billions of people, people smarter, better looking, uh, better behaved than us. He really could have. No problem. But for his glory, he chose us not because we were glorious. He chose us that he might take something weak and base and make something glorious out of it to his glory and to his credit. So we need to give credit and thanksgiving to God uh, before we even move on past verse 2. Uh, to be cognizant that anything that Peter says about us here is because of the hope of the glory of God in us, not because of anything innately within us. Because we are weak and deceitful and desperately wicked and all the other scriptures we read to us to get Protestant beat out of us, Protestantism beat out of us. <laughs> that we're wonderful and God couldn't help but call us or whatever. Uh, we accepted Jesus and now everything's great. No, uh, it didn't go that way. So always, with humility, be thankful for what God has done for each of us. So now we can, with that background, maybe uh, understand and better appreciate, without getting proud, vain, and egotistical, how Peter tries to build us up here. Uh, but let's do it in a righteous, not a selfish way. That's the key. So elect, divine selective, selection. You and I are all divinely selected. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So if you're here and you understand God's truth, God opened your mind and God called you here, you wouldn't be here. So you, as a human being, have had God's specific attention, specific calling, now, that makes us very, very important to his plan and his purpose here in the end time. Not to our glory again, but to his. So it was all by the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Now, his Spirit came to begin to act in our mind and begin to help us understand the truth. So his Spirit, working with our mind and our spirit, began to separate us from the rest of the world. That's what sanctification is. A separation. Set aside. Or put for a specific purpose. In this case, end time work and salvation. 
So we're sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Emmanuel. So Peter and others of the writers of the Gospels, Paul spoke of what we used to be before we began to understand truth. How we were just sinners out in the world like everybody else. Uh, maybe we weren't murderers physically, and we thought we were pretty good, but I'll guarantee you every one of us had as his top number one sin, idolatry. Putting self and the things of this life and world ahead of God. So we were just like the re everybody else out there. So he opened our mind to understand his truth and to become obedient. To obey his laws. To obey his rules. And along with that, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ because our past needed forgiven and we need forgiveness every day because we fall short every day of living up to the standard of Christ. So he called us to obey and also to be forgiven. And then he says, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Paul put it a little differently. He says, I wish above all things you prosper and be in health. Um, it, it's a salutation. But Peter's wish for these people, as he wrote to them, was that the grace of God, the goodwill of God, would be supplied to them. And peace. And peace is a hard commodity to come by. Uh, you look back through all the annals of history of mankind, whether it be people of God or people in the world, and there's war and fighting and strife and division and everything that disturbs the peace in mankind's history. We have a world today with nation after nation set against each other and blocks of nations set against each other and races against each other and churches and peoples and schools and governments just on and on and on there's no peace basically anywhere in the world and we are called to be peacemakers and to bring peace so he says God's goodwill and peace be multiplied verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel so he says, you're called, now let's get our attention on God. That's where our attention needs to be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Emmanuel, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Emmanuel from the dead. Now we were all sold in our own sins. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know the penalty of the wages of sin is death. And that, as human beings, we are all going to die. That's just part of the cycle that God started. So, here we have something to interrupt that cycle. Uh, to give us hope for something different. That through Christ, <coughs> and there's abundant mercy, because when you've sinned, and you deserve to die, you're going to die. And it is God's law that we broke. So he doesn't have to have mercy. He doesn't need mercy. He just is merciful. <laughs> and we can be thankful for that. 
And he's begotten us, or we have the seed of his Spirit with the laying on of hands after repentance and baptism, begotten us to a lively hope by the resurrection of Emmanuel from the dead. <coughs> it isn't a dead hope. It isn't a false hope. It's a lively hope. Now there's where that faith comes in again. That we have to believe that Christ was the Son of God, that He came to this earth, that He was willing to die to remove the penalty of our sins, otherwise we would have to die because the penalty is on us. But through the death of God and the resurrection of the dead, He was dead for 72 hours. Inert. Dead. But he was resurrected back to life and given glory again. So we have that example to show that a human being can be on this earth and he can be resurrected into eternity. So that is a lively hope. We need to think of that pretty regularly. Of what the Father and the Son did for us to give us hope beyond this flesh. Because this flesh doesn't give us any hope. Uh, we, we die violently young or we grow old and come apart a piece at a time until we finally just give it up entirely. But we have hope beyond that. We have people up here in our little cemetery who have hope beyond that. They don't know it at this point, but they have hope uh, because Christ was resurrected and they will be too. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So even though things can get depressing and frustrating on this earth, and we can get frustrated with ourselves for that matter, for our lacks, uh, this is a training ground. This is a time when we will make mistakes. But we have his sacrifice there continually, day after day, that we can count on that our sins be forgiven. He tells us in the book of Lamentations, you are given a new chance, a new start, a fresh hope, every day that dawns. That, that's a great comfort if we believe that. Sometimes we get drugged down by our sins or by our faults or our lacks or our whatever it is that causes us not to be what we want to be. But we need to look at each day that dawns as a new opportunity to do better. <laughs> yesterday's gone you cannot change yesterday you cannot change 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago it's, it's written it's there you wish you hadn't done this and you wish you hadn't done that but you did you failed here you goofed up there but you can't change it now God has said he can change it he can wipe it all away under the blood of Christ. And therefore, when we pray at night and in the morning, end of one day, and the start of a new day of sunshine anyway, we can ask forgiveness for our faults and our failings of the day that has just passed. Then we forget about it and move on to make this day better than yesterday was. We waste a lot of time worrying about the past, do we not? Can't change it. Can't fix it. Ask God's forgiveness and move on. 
Now, does that mean that we can blot it totally from our memory? No, we can't. And can we maybe remember some of the lessons <laughs> that we might have and should have learned from what we did or were? Yeah, the lessons should be printed in our minds and memories so that we don't go there again. But as far as the guilt, it goes under the blood of Christ. So we need to have a clear conscience as each day dawns on us. The yesterday is under the blood of Christ and forgotten. Today is a new day. Let's make this as good as we can and hopefully overcome a little bit so that maybe at the end of this day we won't have as much to lament about as we did yesterday. <laughs> you know, make some progress. Make some growth. He that overcomes will sit down with me in my kingdom. So we have this inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, doesn't fade, it's always there ahead of us, reserved in heaven for you. So he's got it reserved. Your name is, once you're baptized and have laying on of hands and have his spirit, you're written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is there. It's on the, it's on the books. It's reserved in heaven for you. He said, let no man take your crown. The only way we can lose that crown or have our name taken out of that book of life is that if we begin to turn from God and begin to take it for granted and fall behind and fail. He will never leave us or forsake us. It's there. It won't fade. The only danger is that we forsake Him. And that we have to guard against every day lest we become like Esau. Now that's a beautiful scenario to imagine, is it not? That we are held in such high regard by the one who called us that we are considered to be a part of the bride of Christ and he is hopeful that we'll make it. And, and it's not going to fade away. It's reserved for us. Now, God has that attitude toward us, does he not? It's what he just said. Now, do we, then, in turn, give that same opportunity and hope for everyone around us? That we have to consider. If God be merciful and forgiving to us, then we have to be the same way as a, to others. To give them every hope, every chance. To give them a new day. Who knows? They might get scared. They might commit some sin. They might have be reading the Scripture and have an epiphany. <laughs> they might change their attitude. Will we let them? Will we let them? Or do we hold yesterday and last year and four years ago and 20 years against them? No, God gives us a new day every day. And we need to be willing to grant that to every other human being that we know or don't know. And our salvation depends upon us coming to have the attitude of God. And this is His attitude toward us. <clears throat> so it's reserved in heaven for us, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that verse says a lot. We are kept in the faith 
by the power of God. You can't do it on your own. That's why Paul said, who can deliver me from this wretchedness that I am? Only Christ. So he cried out to the Father through Christ for help and strength to overcome, to maintain, to fight the good fight. And by the end of his life, he realized, yes, I have changed enough, I've grown enough, I've had enough forgiveness, I've been faithful enough, I will be in the kingdom of God. And he died knowing that. He had come to have full faith and confidence and trust in God. But it took some growing and overcoming in time for that to happen. We can be kept by the power of God. Now, what did Christ do as an example? He was continually finding a place where prayer was wont to be made. He'd go off in the mountains. He'd go off to the seashore. He'd get away so that he could pray. It says, because of the press of the people, at times he got up way before daylight so that he could have some peace and quiet in order to seek the Father. Now, we don't necessarily always need to get up before daylight in order to pray because we don't have stuff going on on around us in the same way that he did. But the point is, he found a way to do it. If he had to get up real early, he got up real early. If he had to stay up till everybody went to bed, he stayed up till they went to bed and then prayed. So he didn't, because he, he had those disciples with him all the time, and then he had the press of the multitude. And we need quiet time, by is what is meant, to pray to God. And he said, of myself, I can do nothing. As a human being, even Christ himself could do nothing. And he meant it. He had to go to the Father continually to get the help and the strength to do what he had been sent here to do. And we have to do the same thing. When he says to grow and overcome, he means we have to seek him. We have to be close to him. We have to talk to him. We have to read these, his words so that we can grow. And we, we realize that. Some of you have been isolated, I think, now and then, where you could not uh, attend a local church congregation. Uh, I've been in that position more than once in life. Uh, when I was a child and we had become part of the church, nearest congregation was 500 miles away. We couldn't go every week. We'd go at the feast. But it was hard to grow. You weren't continually being fed a weekly sermon. You weren't around people to iron sharpen iron and remind each other and set an example for each other. Uh, and I've noticed that uh, in the ministry. When people are separated by 100 or 200 or 300 miles and they can't have regular contact with other Christians or the ministry, they stagnate. It's not that they're evil. I don't mean it that way. It's just hard for them to grow and move forward just on their own. And that's why God established congregations, is that we might, as a flock of sheep, grow together. Marlo's constantly mentioning, when we have little lambs, which we have a whole bunch of them right now, how they leave their mothers early in the morning when she goes, first goes out to feed, and uh, they all get in a pack, and they run like a school of fish, uh, all together, all 15 of them, here, there, and everywhere, just running, looks like a, a, a string or 
or a school or, you know, like they're kind of welded together and they move in unison with each other. Interesting to watch. Uh, they don't stay alone. They're flock animals. And God compares us to sheep or goats. We're to be flock animals. No man stands alone and no man is an island. So we need time alone with God, but we also need to have time with each other because it helps us grow. So we're kept by the power of God and through the... Uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm getting old. Uh, through each other by the power of the Spirit of God where we can encourage and strengthen one another. So we need time together. We're kept by the power of God through faith Believing, understanding, knowing, committed to, trusting God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter didn't know it was not the last time when he wrote this, but I'm pretty sure we know now we are in the last time. <laughs> it's getting very, very close to the end of this age in this world as we have known it, and Satan's being bound and taken away. And it is in the last time that the mystery of God is revealed, as Paul put it, when the resurrection occurs. And then what we've been thinking about, trusting in, and having faith and hope for all this time is going to be accomplished. And then, then the mystery of God will truly be revealed. Because you and I cannot understand immortality. We cannot understand no tears, no frustration, no pain, no suffering, we can't understand existence under those conditions. We can read about it. We can think about it. We can hope for it. But we can't understand it. We've, it's beyond our experience or our capacity to grasp. <clears throat> so it'll be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a while or a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. So we see what is ahead for us, and we have great hope and trust in that, and yet at the same time we have to deal with temptations and dis discouraging things and frustrations and sins and all kinds of problems that come up in a human life. <coughs> that the trial of your faith, faith has to be tested, it has to be tried, it has to be increased being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Emmanuel. Though we might treasure gold and silver on this earth, but it isn't forever either, and the trial of our faith and our ultimate destiny is far more important than that. He mentions tried with fire here, if you're not very careful in how you refine gold, it goes all the way up. It just goes out the chimney. And the Bible talks about refining silver and gold. It has to be heated and tried in the fire. And we're being tried with the heaviness and temptations that we have in front of us continually. But as we overcome, as we grow, then all this trial and trouble and tribulation and difficulty will all be left behind us as we rise to meet him in the air. <clears throat> Whom not ha having not seen, you love. None of us have seen Christ. 
But we all love Him, don't we? We love what He did for us. We love the blessings He's given us. We love and appreciate the calling that we have. We're thankful. In whom, though now you see Him not, yet believing, you rejoice with, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So if we think about it, we, we believe in Him having done something we didn't see. But it's been done. And we believe it. And we know it. And have we not had conversations with the Father and the Son uh, where we knew that God was listening? I have. I'm sure you have. There are times when I've prayed when I wondered if anybody was listening. <laughs> you know, you sometimes think you're just praying to the ceiling and it's not going anywhere. And sometimes then if you persist and keep on and work at it, then you feel like, hey, now he's listening. Now he hears me. Well, maybe he heard you all along, but the communication was not there. It's just like my wife tells me once in a while, yeah, you hear me, but you're not listening. Uh, you know, and then we talk and maybe we'll begin to hear and comprehend and communicate instead of it just being words. And we have to do that with God. We need to persist at prayer until we know we're being heard and that there's communication between us and God. And I'm sure we've all experienced what I just described. So we believe Him and we rejoice in what He has promised us. Verse 9, Receiving the result or the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, where do we get hope? We get hope by looking forward to God, what God has promised us. Because what we deal with on a day-to-day level, whether it be health or other people or, or wealth or holes in the roof or whatever it might be, uh, that can be frustrating and discouraging and give us problems. But hope is based on the future. That's why when you dwell on the past, you become discouraged and frustrated. We're not supposed to dwell on the past. We're supposed to leave the past behind. Isn't that what Paul said? Leaving those things behind, we press forward toward the mark of the high calling of Christ. In the book of Hebrews. Don't worry about the past. You're, you're hurting yourself. You're cheating yourself and you're hurting others if you dwell on the past. Again, you can't change it. You can't do anything about it except ask for forgiveness and move on. Now, if you want to have a lively hope, he's already said that hope is in the resurrection. So you need to be looking forward, not backward. Always look forward. Forgetting that which is past. You can't fix it. You can only fix today and tomorrow. It's the only thing you can fix. Well, then why worry about the other? Get on with it. Today and tomorrow. It's the only thing that's under our control. So that lively hope is based on looking ahead at what has been promised. Looking behind at failure only causes more failure. Looking forward to salvation helps us overcome. Now, 
Verse 10, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Now this is something he's saying about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the minor prophets, uh, David, uh, Moses, Abraham, were all the prophets of God. And they didn't understand what we understand in the way that we understand it. They searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come to us. Now, God inspired them to write things about the future, to write things about His Holy Spirit coming, about Christ coming. Well, Christ hadn't been here when those prophets walked the earth. And they didn't grasp the new covenant. Now, maybe to some degree, David and Abraham and a very, very few did, because David did cry, Take him out your spirit from me. And he does say down here a little bit further that they did have the spirit of Christ in them at that time. So, But they didn't grasp the picture the way we do. Christ hadn't come. He hadn't died. He hadn't been resurrected. He hadn't been returned to glory. Those things are history now for us to learn from. And the things about the resurrection and the way that they've been written in Corinthians and in Revelation and so on hadn't been written. So we understand more in a lot of ways than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel did. I hope we grasp that. We have an advantage. They prophesied of the grace that would come to us, but they didn't understand it. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Isaiah didn't understand what he was saying when he wrote Isaiah 53. Nor did David when he wrote Psalm 22 and 23. Not in the way that we understand it. Unto whom it was revealed that not to themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported to you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. So they were given words to say, and they didn't know what they meant, and they diligently thought about it. What's, what's this all about? Why is God having me write this? I don't get it. And even the angels, who are at the throne of God today, and maybe some here, around us. Don't quite grasp it, even today. They saw Christ come and die. They saw Him resurrected. They saw what happened in Acts 2, with the power and the wind and the tongues of fire when the Holy Spirit came. They watched us be baptized. They watched us struggle. But what's their point of reference? The angel's point of reference is the Father and the Son, and the 24 elders, all the beings that God has created around His throne, they also have as a point of reference Satan and the rebellious demons who left God and fought Him and are miserable and angry and wretched and fearful today. And then they see human beings down here who act like what? For the most part, we act like Satan as human beings. Murder, uh, hate, thievery, hate for God, not knowing who God is, 
So the angels see righteousness here, and they see rebellion here, and then they see most human beings in rebellion against God, and yet God says those humans are going to be higher than you someday. And that must be hard for them to grasp. As those angels watch you and me down here, it must be hard for them to understand how we could become on the same level as Christ as His bride. I can, I can expect that's a hard nut to swallow. <laughs> See what I mean? That's what Peter's saying. They, they desire to look into what you and I grasp about our future. They can't see it. Now, they understand it in the, to some degree. But he's explaining they don't quite get it either until it happens, until they see some of us rising from the earth and glorified and incorruptible when they've seen us be so corruptible. Uh, it's going to be hard for them to grasp until that point. So he says, understanding that you may even have a better grasp through the Spirit of God of the purpose He's placed within you than the angels do at this point. So he says, whether that be quite true or not, <coughs> you have all these prophets of old, and you have the angels who don't quite get it. And they're pretty important. The prophets of God were important to God's plan. And the angels are very, very important in God's scheme of things. So he says, if you have a past and a present like that, it ought to evoke some kind of a response from you. <coughs> and he says that in verse 13. Wherefore, because of the prophets and the angels, gird up the loins of your mind. Gather your thoughts up. Focus. Don't just da 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 through life, but focus. Gird up your mind. If you gird up your belt, what do you do? You take it up a notch or two. <coughs> we have to do the same thing with our minds. Be sober. Serious-minded. Now, that doesn't mean that we can never laugh uh, or kid around or just be human in that sense. <coughs> but overall... Our thinking should be sober. It should be deep. It should be thinking about the things of the future and the things of God and what we need to do to be more like God. So that's what he means by be sober. And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Emmanuel. So he says, be serious-minded, always thinking about these things and looking forward to the lively hope of the resurrection. Now let's get this. Don't we realize that we put ourselves through an awful lot of misery and pain and frustration by thinking about the past? Don't we? Well, I was this and I did that and I shouldn't have done this and Maybe God won't forgive me, and blah, blah, on and on and on we go. And we do the same thing about other people, about the things they might have done or their past. You know what that does? It frustrates and holds us back. I saw a saying just the other day. It said, whether you love me or whether you hate me, 
It's all to my favor. If you love me, I'll always be in your heart. If you hate me, I'll always be on your mind. <laughs> right? If we hate, we destroy our own peace by holding that in our mind. Now, why is that hatred there? Of things done or allegedly done or said in the past. That's why they're there. Why do you hate your ex-husband? Because he blacked your eyes and bloodied your nose and on and on. Things passed. Or what affect our mind and our mentality and our emotions for the, for the present and the future. This, this is a serious issue. Peter addresses it very well here. Forgetting the past. Turning it loose. And moving forward is the key. Paul said it very clearly in Hebrews. And he's saying the same thing here. Gird your minds up. Don't let those thoughts that drag you down from the past do that anymore. Look forward to the hope of glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. That's where our focus and our minds need to be. If you want to have a lively hope, You've got to look forward. You can't look back. Looking back discourages us. Don't do that anymore. Now, it's easy for me to sit here and say that. But you need to get hold of your mind and your emotions and quit dwelling in the past and move forward. Now, did we get it? No, we didn't. <laughs> We'll still go do it, won't we? Well, think about it then. Tighten your mind up a little bit and focus. And work on it. This, this isn't something that will change completely overnight. I know that. But I'm emphasizing it a bunch here so that we might get the point and we might begin to work on it. And when we find ourselves going back into the past, we'll say, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to look forward to the lively hope within me and of the future, not the past. The past is in the blood of Christ. Everybody else's past who is converted and forgiven is under the blood of Christ. Leave it there. Move on. You know, I don't want to hope in the, in the cross of Christ forevermore. Does that sound blasphemous? I don't. I don't want to, I want to come to the point I don't have to trust in the cross of Christ and his blood. Because I want to be resurrected and made immortal and incorruptible and unsinning and I'll never need it again. Now I will until the day I die physically or I'm changed. I'll need the the crucifixion and the blood of Christ. But what I'm looking forward to is the point where I never have to depend on that again. Because I'll never sin again. And that's the lively hope that is in us, is the resurrection and the transformation. And we'll never sin again. That's the lively hope that we have. <clears throat> Verse 15. But as he which has called you is holy, 
so be you holy in all manner of conduct. Now, if you were unholy yesterday, don't worry about it. Be holy today. Today is your first best chance to be holy. Yesterday is too late. Done come and gone. Think of now and tomorrow, not yesterday. Be you holy, for I am holy. You can't be holy yesterday if it's today. It's impossible. It's too late. Move on. Be holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We should live in fear. Now, we like everything comfortable and peaceful. But we need to live in fear, not of man or conditions on earth. We need to live in fear of God, who can give us eternal life, or who can consign us to death. Fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. So while we're here, fear God. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, nobody paid silver and gold for you, from your vain conduct received by tradition of your fathers. I wanted to be just like you, Dad. Boy, my dad had a lot of good qualities, but I wouldn't want to be just like him. My kids don't want to be just like me. (laughs) I want to be just like God. I want to be like the Son of God. The vain conduct and traditions we receive from our fathers, uh, you know, some families have been wealthy, had lots of gold and silver, money or whatever, wealth. Others had other privilege in life. But they all had vanity and pride and ego and selfishness and all those things that we're not to be. So he says, don't, don't look to the things on this earth, but look to what? Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's our goal and our purpose on this earth is to become just like Him without blemish, without spot, without sin, without weakness. And that's a tall order. And every one of us fails every day. Can you say, short of being in a coma, that you've ever gone through a day where you never had a wrong thought, a selfish thought, a greedy thought, a lustful thought, a vain thought, a proud thought. Can you say you brought every thought into the captivity of Christ and never had a wrong thought of any kind? I don't think I could even begin to. Sometimes a minute or an hour is a pretty long time to try not to think something you shouldn't think because... That selfishness is always there. That idolatry where we put ourselves, Even not praying is idolatry. That's putting my time and my energy into something besides to God when I know I need it. So that much selfishness is idolatry. Putting self in my comfort or what I want to do today ahead of what God would have me do. <clears throat> So you haven't had a perfect day yet. But you're working toward it. 
by overcoming and growing and focusing on the future, today and tomorrow, to become without blemish and without spot, who truly was ordained, foreordained, before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So, God called us, and He predetermined and foreknew us, but He knew Christ and what He would do before the very foundation of earth, before man was ever created. And it, it was all done to make us God. God's purpose in creating human beings was not to make perfect human beings. Do you understand that? He didn't intend you to be perfect or godly when you were born on this earth. He had created Satan and those who became demons with good character. They didn't sin. They loved God. They served God. <clears throat> but within them, somehow, there was the capacity to rebel against God. And then they became evil, sinful, wretched, rotten beings who are still alive. So he said, never again will I create beings like that who could turn on me. I'm going to create some people that are pretty much like Satan and his angels, his demons. And I'm going to tell them, if you will overcome that tendency to be like Satan, then I'll grant you eternal life. But I'm going to put you through it down there and I'm going to be sure you want it, and you work at it, and you strive, and you overcome the nature of Satan. Deceitful and desperately wicked. That's the nature of Satan. And it's the nature you and I have. And we have to overcome that through the blood and the power of God. He didn't make us to be good. He could have. But we could have turned bad. He made Adam and Eve with a pretty good attitude right at the first. But how far? How long did it take them to turn and become bad? Just one little temptation. That's it. Did God say that? I don't think God said that. Oh, well, He must not have. That didn't take long. <clears throat> he wants us to be proved. He wants us to go through the fire. To go through temptation and trouble and difficulty and sin and wretchedness and frustration until we get the point that we want to be like God because we're destroying life and peace on this earth. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Can't be in ourselves because we're wretched and deceitful and carnal and the works of the flesh are what they are. So the hope has to be in God. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the tr Spirit to unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now when we get through talking about faith and then we talk about hope based on the future that God has promised us that we'll obey, then we have to deal with love. Now, of the three, love is the greatest. But let's understand that there come a time when you won't need faith. You won't need faith. It'll be gone. 
because you'll be in the kingdom of God and you won't have to worry about trusting God or committing yourself to God or waiting on God because you'll be there. Faith is something about things unseen. Then we'll see the Father. We'll see the Son. We'll be living with Him. We won't need faith anymore. And hope is based on a promise of something coming in the future. And there'll come a time when you don't need hope anymore because you'll be God. You'll be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye. Won't need hope after that. Why is love the greatest of those? Because you'll need that forever. If we're going to have a loving, peaceful relationship with God and other human beings who have become God forever throughout eternity and never rebel against God or each other, as Satan and the demons did, love is the greatest by far because it's something you'll need forever, ever more. Satan's love of God turned to hate through lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and pride. And God will not make us into spirit beings until he is convinced that we will never rebel against him as Satan did. And that's for our good. Because Satan is a wretched being. A hateful being. And I don't want to be like that. I'd rather be in the third resurrection than to live forever like Satan is. Look at what he's done to us around here. It isn't peaceful. It isn't fun. So see that you love one another fervently with a pure heart. Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruption by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So he's again, he's pushing us forever forward toward hope, not discouragement and frustration from past uh, sins or evil. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. He's quoting Isaiah 40 there, which is an end-time uh, prophecy of today. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the eternal endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So we're here dealing with forever. We're here dealing with eternity. And our goal and our purpose and our focus needs to be on the future, not on the past. I say that again in closing, because let's gird up uh, the loins of our mind. Let's be sober and think about the future and quit being stupid and thinking about the past. You realize that? That is spiritual stupidity to think about the past. It is spiritual revelation to think about the future.